Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brady's Corner. I'm Brady, and this is my corner. We've got a very special guest today, Nathan Gaither. Uh, he is a CPA and the CFO for IBM companies. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you, Brady. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I really appreciate uh, you joining this morning. Um, you know, would love uh, to hear a bit, a little bit about you, your CPA. You know, tell me all about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, your your undergrad. How'd you get into the industry and, and your background? Yeah, you bet. So, IDM, we're uh, we're an integrated, uh, vertically integrated development, construction, property management firm. My background, I grew up in the construction industry. My grandfather was a home builder. My father was a home builder. And my my first job was about six years old, crawling around in crawl spaces to find nails uh, because there was no such thing as a wasted nail. So grew up in the construction industry. That was my summer for all of my life until I went to school. Well, actually through college, I got to the University of Washington, where I ended up graduating with accounting and information systems, some computer science, and went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers right at the amazing starting point of 2009. So it was, uh, of course, a fun time, especially in kind of the services industries and corporate services industries. I uh, worked there for five years, got my CPA license, was very active in finance process improvement type consulting for PwC, got to travel, got to see quite a bit, see any number of companies and how they operated from uh, some small software firms in Seattle, all the way to large investment firms with, with a global reach, um, some technology giants. So really got to see a broad span as far as corporate operations. And then after I'd been there five years, my dad reached out and said, hey, I've kind of moved on from the home building game and am focused on multifamily construction. So apartment sites, why don't you come back and, and join me? So my younger brother had a couple of years earlier. So I figured why not? And made the jump, came back and, and dove back into construction. So when I came back, I started out as a project manager. The first thing I did was build out the last subdivision that my dad and his partners did. So I built 35 houses to get started and then moved into construction project management for multifamily sites. So it's kind of our bread and butter, gated, fenced communities, three-story walk-up anywhere from 200 to 500 units, somewhere in there. And that's what we do today. When I came back, we were doing one to two projects at a time. Uh, now we are doing about 2,200 units a year and uh, are growing. So that's, that's the quick and dirty. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. What a great story. And growing is an understatement, right? I mean, um, you, you've done developments in communities um, what all, all over Portland, Salem, um, Washington, um, and then... yeah, so the, the company started in the Pacific Northwest. So Clark County, Portland Metro, like you noted down the I-5 corridor to Salem can be up, uh, North Clark County, and then really started to 
move a lot of our business to Arizona, the Phoenix Metro, a lot of our new development. That's where we're most active today. And would it be safe to say that you're the, if not largest, you know, certainly fastest growing multifamily community developer in, in, in Maricopa County? Probably at least the fastest growing. I don't, there are some, some heavy hitters here, but as far as within the Phoenix Metro units under active development, we're, we're right up there, if not the largest here. So, let me let's talk a little bit about you know your your background starting in public accounting and you know that transition and and your time there. Five years for anybody um, that has worked in public accounting. Five years in public accounting is is you can think of it like presidential years, right? It's uh, what twenty five hundred yeah. hours a year. Um, yeah, you know, typically what one would work, um, maybe more in some occasions. And my. Maybe- Best year, depending on how you look at it, I think I build 2,800 hours. 2,800 hours. So yeah, that's what you build. And what you worked was well into the threes, I'm guessing, right? So, it was a fair amount. Those were, that was a long year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what, what kind of, uh, what, what was the, um, you know, I, I guess the, the impetus um, or, you know, as you were growing in, uh, public accounting. What was the impetus to to move over to industry? Was it, would you have gone anyway, or was it just um, you know seeing seeing your family you know out here doing doing well and actually had a great need for you? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I personally, as far as what I thought of my career, my goal was to make partner. You know, stay at the firm, make partner, and and really build a career there. And my dad, he worked on me for a while. You know, he kept kind of, Hey, come back and work with us, come back and work with us. And I rebuffed him many times, but he was persistent. And then, uh, yeah, just a mix of of personal and family reasons. You know, I was, I had moved away from where my extended family was and really was not getting back to see them. And, just kind of had a moment where it's like, you know what, family is important. I'm not prioritizing it. And this career won't, won't, I don't want to say the career wouldn't let me, but the way I approached that career wouldn't let me. Uh, And so I needed to make a big shift if that's what I was going to prioritize. And then, uh, you know, it's family business, family legacy, um, wanting to bring my skill set in and help further and advance the company that my dad and his partner, Jeff had, had started and developed. So. That's fantastic. Um, And then, you know, now, now that you're there, how do you, you know, thinking about the, the skills that you learned at at PwC and, and, you know, big four in general, um, I'm, I'm guessing you're pretty appreciative of a lot of the things you learned there. Um, you know, the focus on. Detail. Oh, yeah. Um, what, what are some of the things that, that you might see on a, a day to day or even, you know, weekly or monthly basis? Yeah, definitely. Like you noted, the attention to detail one is important. I mean, there's a, a pretty broad range of what we do and what I do here as CFO. We have really multiple operating divisions. We have a full-blown development organization. We have a full-blown GC organization. We have a full-blown property management company. And so 
they are related but different disciplines, but you can kind of unify across them through accounting and finance as a language, I'll say. Um, you, you can align goals, you can set targets and milestones um, that, that help the company all row in the same direction. And so having that background um, plus my involvement in construction and development in the past has really enabled me to, I think, help the firm through some of our growing pains. Uh, I have an attention to detail where some of our other leaders are motivators or are visionaries. And I'm probably the most kind of grounded and, hey, this is all great. Now let's figure out how we're going to actualize it and turn these ambitions and strategies and ideas into something actionable. Can, can you dig a little bit in on an example, maybe, you know, maybe a past example? You, know, you don't have to give away the goods on future plans. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, some of it is just the, I'll say the things that are easy to forget or, or that are just assumed. So on any given project, you are always going to have insurance. You're going to have uh, project specific general liability insurance, you have builder's risk insurance, et cetera. And it's just kind of a given. And so if, when you're, you know, planning a new development, you kind of just throw a number out there and, and hey, we just know we have to have insurance. But there's this whole other very detailed step of insurance means a lot of things. What limits should we carry? What should we expect for premiums? What are some of the risks we're willing to take to manage costs? What are some of the things we're not? And so um, deep diving into areas like that where, okay, it's the next step beyond, we just need to have it. And really understanding what are our goals? What's our risk appetite? And what are we willing to accept to manage budget versus manage risk? So that's that's kind of a small example, I guess, of of where those details really start to matter. And you know, you mentioned um, at at our Bake Summit in 2021, um, we were we were going around the room, and if it's okay, I mention uh, I'll mention one thing that that you said. Yeah. That was really kind of thought provoking and and really kind of led the day in all the conversations around the room. Uh, you mentioned like the single most word, the one word that describes um, your mission as a company, um, and and it's really a focus on the community. And yeah. you know the the most common I don't know of complaint or whatnot that I hear about multifamily investors out there is like. You know, there's folks that want to just, you know, slap on a new coat of paint and put a new sign out front and double the rents. Um, and mm -hmm. the complaint is, well, what's in it for the community? What's in it for, you know, the, um, the, the, the renters or the tenants? And um, that's something that, that you all not only focus on, but, but you put your money where, the, uh, where your mouth is, um, not only in the fully integration, but even on the way um, that, that you train, train your people in-house. Um, can you talk about uh, the community aspect a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's something we've really latched on to and embraced as we have modified our approach to the business over the years. And it's kind of a, you know, real estate's an interesting environment. You have a lot of people in the industry who have uh, ethics that vary greatly. 
Um, some people are very focused on how to extract the most money and some people are focused on how do I house the most people? Um, both, you know, both extremes are valid and then there's a broad range in the middle. And so we're constantly trying to balance those two. You know, we have investors that we have a fiduciary responsibility to and, and we need to perform for them. But at the same time, um, you know, when you look at who our customers are, who our users are, these are people living in what they consider their home. And so it's, it's important to us to treat both with respect. And, and so a while back, we made a strategic decision to really focus, like you noted, on community and, and building a community feel at the properties that we operate and manage, making people or help, ensuring that our residents feel respected, feel cared for, feel responded to. Um, and, and there are different ways we do that. A lot of it is, like you noted, just training our people. We place a heavy emphasis on employee retention. It's a lot nicer for a resident if they know who the manager of the property is, and that doesn't change. Um, property management typically has extremely high turnover. And so finding ways to incentivize our people to stay, help them grow and develop um, while, you know, meeting their personal goals, but while keeping people in place so that residents have that comfort of, hey, I know the property management team, I know who to reach out to. Um, and then on the flip side, retention of our residents. Um, how do we keep people here so that they're not every year having to change their whole life to move to a new property because they are able to save a little bit money of money and they have to. And so we made a very strategic focus on resident retention and reducing turnover, keeping units full. And, and so for example, our leasing agents, they earn a higher commission when they sign a resident renewal rather than a new apartment lease. And so that motivates our team to you know, do what is needed to make people want to stay. Uh, community events, responsiveness and respect that, you know, there's, there's a lot that we could deep dive into, but, but that's kind of the high level, that strategic focus on resident retention rather than resident renewals. Um, that's, that's important to us. That's great. And that's not, very common in the industry, is it? Uh, you know, that type of incentivization or in incentivization? I think probably not. We, we have an advantage in that, like I said at the beginning, we're vertically integrated. So we, we identify sites, we develop them, we GCM, and then we own and operate long-term. And so the properties that we operate, we are the owners. So we can make these kinds of decisions of, hey, um, we think it's better for both our business and our residents if we focus on retention. And so we self-cap our renewal rates. We're not always chasing market rates. We're not always adding little, what I'll call meaningless additions to unit finishes just to seek the highest dollar. And, you know, you, you compare that to most of the property management industry, their third-party servicers, and, and they may not have that flexibility. So that is that is one thing that I think distinguishes us and it is an inbuilt advantage for us. And not only does that, you know, make you, I, I think very, very socially aware and socially active uh, with your community, but 
that results in, you know, I mean, higher profit, right? I mean, what, what, you might not be able to share um, your, your percentage of turnover, but um, I, I think you, you told me um, that folks rarely leave uh, for, for reasons other than maybe buying a house or something, right? So, yeah, you know, certainly it depends on the market and the property, um, but across a lot of our properties, um, absolutely, our retention rates are extremely high, our vacancy rates are extremely low. The industry standard benchmark that we work against is 5% vacancy at any given time. Our internal target is more like 2%. And you're just not going to achieve that without retention. You know, it takes time to turn a unit when someone moves out to, to re-rent, et cetera. And so you can't hit those benchmarks unless your turnover is lower. Now, COVID has played into that and totally affected the entire industry, right? People act, were naturally staying in place um, more than we've seen historically. So we'll have to see how much that played into it. We've been utilizing this strategy since before COVID and, and found success before. So, you know, hopefully, at, at least as far as our metrics, that wasn't a huge determinant. So now, did that change at all? You know, that more people are working remote and and whatnot, I, you know, on, on your website, it describes, you know, living and working, um, you know, all of that in that area, or is that change the dynamic of how you're designing your communities? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We made some shifts in our unit designs and our community center designs uh, to accommodate a little bit more of that, you know, work from home or remote work type of user. Um, and in some in way, you know, we used to have a little business center in our community centers. We actually eliminated that and tried to find ways to modify our units a little bit to make them more comfortable for remote work. Um, so things like that, where, again, trying to find the balance of who knows what will happen as COVID goes away, right? You know, you're starting to see the announcements from Microsoft and Nike and Intel of, no, no, you, people are, will be coming back to the office. And so <laughs> you don't want to drastically change everything you do to accommodate this new paradigm because maybe it's not as much of a permanent paradigm shift as we've thought, but it has legs, right? People are finding they like this. All of these return to work schemes have had some sort of blend three days in the office two days remote, whatever it may be. So it's certainly, it's it's important that we're trying to stay on top of those trends, keep our places comfortable for people to live in and work from if if that's what they're doing. That's great. Are you able to talk about uh, any any uh, projects uh, coming up this year that, that you're breaking ground on? Um, sure, yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a lot going on. We're, we're fortunate that way we have a, site that we just started mass grading on in Vancouver, Washington. That'll be Maritime Evergreen, 300 units. So we're working through uh, building permits right now. Uh, we've, we've gotten started. And so we've got a really strong construction team in the Northwest, a very well-established, you know, 30 plus years of subcontractor relationships that really just supports our success up there. And then down in the Phoenix Metro, we just broke ground in the town of Queen Creek on a project in the fall. Um, we've got 
project, another Queen Creek project in Mesa, a project in Goodyear, a couple in the city of Phoenix. So we have a lot queued up here in the Phoenix Metro this year. If, if they all come together by the end of the year, we probably will have broken ground on 2,500 to 3,000 units worth of projects. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, you know, and then at the same time, we are starting to see challenges. Lumber has once again reared its ugly head and is probably going to affect some of those starts. We, we may end up kind of slowing a little bit of our development pace so that we can manage, um, you know, inventory material costs a little bit, uh, worker ability, you know, readiness, I, I guess, is just labor availability being able to keep projects moving other materials. So, you know, we're, we're adapting a lot of what we do. We've started doing things we never would have in the past, uh, paying to buy and store lumber so that we're not, you know, hey, we're happy with the number today. Let's lock it in, not be, you know, susceptible to the whims of the market. So things like that, that uh, are changing the way we do business a little bit to try and mitigate risk, keep projects moving. So that's fantastic. And then, you know, how did, I mean, every single thing, I'm just looking at my notes here uh, from, from, you know, your, your earlier talking, every single thing is fully integrated here, even the funding. I mean, um, you guys aren't taking any, any new investors or anything like that right now, right? I mean, I, I don't want to say no, but we're very blessed to have a, an extensive investor pool, most of whom have invested with us previously. We certainly have more capital available than, than we're able to utilize today. Um, you know, how much of that is today in today's market? Who knows, right? In, in a couple of years, things could turn. But, but we're very blessed today. Yeah, we, we don't go seek funds today we have funds available we have investors that want into our projects and again many of them are are returning have been with us before so now are you able to um bring up the crystal ball a little bit and, and look a couple of years into the future you know there, there's a lot of things on the horizon we still have an uncorrected supply chain as you mentioned um we we have interest rates that are about to be hiking up we've got um, inflation and depending on the numbers you want to look at, whether, you know, the, the nominal versus real numbers on inflation, um, as well as um, what was the, the last number published by the NAHB? What is it? A demand of 5 million homes? Something like that. Yeah. And, and what are we producing? Just over a million a year. A million a year. Yeah. And then inflation, uh, not, you know, you got inflation, you've got interest rates about to spike up, which is going to increase the cost of, of homes, right? And it's yep. going to price a lot of buyers out of the market. Obviously, that's how, how does that affect you and, and you know, your, your business and, and model um, that it should increase demand for you all, right? So it, it should, but a lot of this is a little bit unprecedented, right? I mean, real estate moves in cycles, um, but I, there's a lot going on right now that at least in my lifetime hasn't happened before. The stock market is extremely, I don't want to say necessarily overheated because I'm not an expert there, but PE ratios are through the roof relative to what they've been for a long time. Like you noted, interest rates have been low for a long time and are now rising. 
Uh, housing stock is incredibly short, probably shorter than it's ever been. And so, you know, how those things interplay, what that means for the future is difficult to assess. For for us, a lot of it comes down to underwriting new projects and how do we try to take that information and make it meaningful. Uh, land prices are high right now. Material prices are through the roof. We're looking, we're facing lower return on cost on project pro formas. Um, how much can we assume that, well, you know, rents in two years when this project is finishing are going to be up X amount because that's what they've been doing. But, you know, at the same time, you want to be careful on what you bank on. That's 25% of the construction industry disappeared after 08, right? So you certainly don't want to be overextending and, and putting ourselves in that position. So it's interesting, an interesting time. It's hard to plan ahead. It doesn't mean you don't do it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, we're just trying to be careful in, in the assumptions we make and how we approach the market. Um, and, and yeah, continue to pick sites that, that we believe in, continue to manage the company to respect our people, our residents. Um, but yeah, I, these are all great questions I, I, that I don't have answers to. I mean, we're working every day to, to try and figure out man, how do we respond to this? What's going to happen when rates go up? Is money going to rush out of the market trying to find yield elsewhere? Uh, construction loans, obviously, are going to get more expensive permanent loans. So just like a, a home buyer, their cost is going up. So is ours. And uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I think no matter what, people need somewhere to live, right? And so there's some safety and security there for us. But it also doesn't mean that they need to live at the place I have available for them. And so trying to, to balance that. Yeah. You know, on, on the flip side of that is that, um, I mean, Phoenix is, you know, Greater Phoenix has so many good things going on. Um, I, I recently uh, listened and, and watched Elliot D. Pollock, an economist out there, speak at the last uh, Home Builder show there. And he talked about, you know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to summarize it. Don't don't kill me, Elliot. Um, basically, 50 years of blue skies, you know, particularly in, in the focus in his conversation was on the Douglas Ranch um, expansion out there, which is a um, Howard Hughes uh, Corporation uh, development. Um, and, you know, they're talking about what, 30 to 50,000 homes out there and commercial and multifamily and all, all sorts of things that. Um, they're going to be developing um, and, you know, you know, thinking about that, you know, you Arizona is the number one semiconductor um, now mm -hmm. manufacturer state in, in, in the union that's going to continue to expand right I mean we, we need ships made here, we can see, you know, speaking of supply chain disruptions. Um, so, you know, thinking about that, um, you know, any, any thoughts on that I mean it's it's a very strategic place so. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I mean, we picked it a, a few years ago because we thought it was growing and, and certainly has certainly all indications are that it will continue to, like you said, there are a lot of jobs coming here. The Phoenix Metro continues to expand and, and outlying areas probably outside of the Phoenix Metro are starting to, to grow. Jobs are coming in. It, it's an attractive place. I 
I've only actually been here a few months. Uh, That's right. The, you just moved there. And, you know, yeah, yeah. what's that transition been like? It's a little been a little bit sunnier than uh, Portland? Uh, man, I'll tell you, I, I've loved it. More, far more than I ever thought I would. I, I mean, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I love it up there. Uh, I was the last member of our executive team to move this way and, and kind of, you know, pushed it off. Uh, and then we got down here a couple of months ago and man, I, I just love it. The, the sun, the culture, the friendliness, it's a, a little different world in very many ways, uh, down here. So, yeah, can see people's faces. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no yeah I, I think i think we we uh picking up what you're putting down um no. no that's fantastic and then also at a personal level you have been uh you're 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 big into fitness you've done a number of iron man competitions right uh halves mostly halves yeah halves. okay and then um you're going to be picking that up uh starting again we'll see i i've got a very close friend slash family member who is an insane endurance athlete uh, he does the ultramans which are three-day triathlons uh you know I, I would love to get back he's he got me into iron man in the first place and then quickly grew far beyond anything i was trying to do i would definitely love to get some races in with him i have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and and uh, to really do those races is a very significant time commitment, you know, to do them with any kind of success. And uh, it prioritization changed with the kids. So probably longer term, you know, once they're in school, that'll make a little bit of a difference as far as being able to put time into training. Hey, they have uh, those to, running yeah. strollers and that actually adds a little I, bit. I use one. Yeah, I've, well, I've, I've put one to good use. So That's, it's I'm definitely, just... uh, you know, had the had the baby and uh, that put a crimp on on the fitness schedule. So I'm slowly rebuilding. I'm no, that's awesome. back into it. I mean, you're doing it all. It's it's great. Any you know, um, any advice for the uh, CPA um, or um, accountant that's studying to be a CPA at Big Four? You know, um, as far as their options and opportunities out there, what they should be doing? Say they're one year. Um, yeah. Before. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I love PwC. I loved that industry. It it was. You worked a lot. You learned a lot. I thrived in that environment. I worked with a lot of people who didn't. the The hours were too long. It just it just wasn't for them. It, and it wasn't. I think it was. You know, you're in the industry and you're you're pressured to kind of meet these expectations, and you're failing if you're not. And I actually, at the time, counseled a lot of people under me that, hey, man, there's nothing wrong with knowing this isn't for you. It is for me. I love it. But it's okay to say it's not for me. And you've got plenty of options, especially having it on your resume. So, you know, actually, my number one piece of advice would be don't, don't kill yourself if you hate it. You should love what you're doing. You want to love what you're doing. And so, yeah. You know, don't force yourself to to stick around and stick in it uh, when it's not something you love. From there, though, as you know, as much as you can, if you do enjoy it, or if you at least want to stick it out, em embrace it. Take on you know any challenge you can find. Be the one to say, 
yeah, I'll, I'll go try this thing that I don't really know how to do, but I will figure it out. I will get it done. That's how you learn. Right. Yeah. And so I'm not saying volunteer for everything so that you're working the most, but don't be afraid of challenges. Don't be afraid of failure. That's the best way to learn. Um, so that, that's kind of my quick little uh, response there. I love it. You know, one of the things I would always um, counsel folks is, you know, volunteer for the projects nobody else wants to do and just totally. do a great job at it. Um, yep. you know, and, and in accounting, nobody wanted to travel. And I would always be the first one to volunteer, sure. you know, because yeah. um, everybody has the routines and whatnot. And yep. um, so, no, that's great. And then um, I guess lastly, um, any, you know, any particular um, um, thoughts or, or, or whatnot on, um, let's, um, on, on, I guess, IDM companies and in, in general, any, anything that, that you want to talk about there, uh, before we jump off? Uh, I mean, in general, I guess, you know, it's, it's, we're growing. We, I don't even know, five years ago, we were 50 people, Today we're 250. I, I could be wrong on where we start. I'm trying to think when I came back eight years ago, um, our construction team was small. Our development team really was the owner, you know, the principals and, and kind of the young leaders um, versus today, you know, we have 150 plus property management staff. We have a construction development team of 50 plus people. Our corporate back office is, 20 to 30 people and, and continuing to grow. And so that's where a lot of the fun is today. We're, we're at that point where we can't just operate how we always have. We've been very much anyone just pick up and do whatever has to be done. And we're getting to a point now where, no, I, I need you specializing. You know, I need you focused on what you're really good at. And I need you to raise your hand and say, hey, I don't have capacity. I don't have time. We need to hire someone. In the past, it's kind of been a, you know, let's just figure out how to get it all done. Let's be efficient. Let's be agile. And so we're still trying to keep that ethos, but we're kind of moving into this medium-sized business category. And so really a big, you can kind of see, I've got my little color-coded wallboard there. Those are all process improvement projects that we need to tackle this year. Uh, for future proofing, you know, these are the things that maybe they still work today, but double our head count, which we probably will over the next two years. And most of the things on that list are not going to work anymore. And so trying to really buckle down this year, tackle those projects and start to set us or set ourselves up for the growth that we're seeing. That's amazing. So do you follow a particular system like EOS or anything um, I, kind of a mishmash. I, I, I probably should. I mean, when I was at the firm, lean and agile were big and, and you know, went through those training programs. Uh, there's a, a book called Traction that I really yeah. like. They've got a pretty good system. Um, uh, wow. Use outside OKRs. To, are, are you using outside consultants to kind of not a lot, but that's part of what's up there is starting to identify, hey, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a, of a ethic of, you know, let's be efficient and figure it out. 
and we're getting to the point where figuring it out isn't necessarily what's efficient. Let's go hire someone that knows what they're doing. And so that is part of it, Brady, is, hey, what are the things that, like, why am I spending my time learning how to program SharePoint online? Great. I, you know, I used to do a fair amount of of programming, but I, it's not what I do anymore. And so rather than muddling my way through it, why don't we go hire a consultant who can help us, you know, fix some of these backend issues we have and, and help us set up some of the things we want. So that's definitely part of what's up there is what should we be doing ourselves? What should we be hiring out? And, or like, who do we need to go hire? You know, what do we need a data analyst? Are we at the point now where across our different disciplines, we have enough information that we need someone whose job is to analyze, track, look at trends, those kinds of things. And so that's, you know, that's a lot of what's up there. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a phenomenal podcast and some great content. I know folks are going to love it. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you everyone for joining. Please make sure to like and subscribe Brady's Corner and we'll see you next time.